All right, good morning. Our scripture today is all of Job 38. So let's rock and roll. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its homes? You know, for you were born then, and the numbers of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the times of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetites of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey 
when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Well, good morning. Welcome to Believer's Church. Uh, oops, there go my papers. And uh, happy new year to you all. Uh, I'm excited to get to bring in the new year with you guys here together, Believer's Church, with so many people that I love. Um, I do know, I see some faces that I don't know. And so if you, you don't know who I am, my name is Daniel Welker. I'm a member here. Um, and, and, and so I'm just really excited to bring in uh, the word with you this morning uh, from the book of Job. Um, but before we do that, uh, I do want to talk to the kids for a little bit. So kids, give me a wave, make some noise. Where are you guys at? That was a trap. You fell for it. <laughs> so kids today, I want to ask you to think about some chores. So uh, kids, are there some chores that maybe you sometimes have a little bit of a bad attitude about? Can someone give me a chore they sometimes have a bad attitude? Yeah, Evie. Under the table. It is sneaky, yeah. For sure. Anything else? Yeah. Huh? The litter box? Is that what you said? Oh, just clean your room. I think I heard litter box in there somewhere. Maybe that's what it feels like sometimes. But yeah, cleaning your room, definitely. I, I, I don't like that one either. Yeah, Ben. Oh, that's a good one. Cleaning out the toilet. Yeah, maybe one or two more. Yeah. Laundry, there it is. That's mine too. So, so hand, hands down, um, I'm going to share with you, and, and you know I can't lie because my mom's here and she'll, she'll tell you if I'm lying here. When I was growing up, I had a really bad attitude about like basically all of the chores, but especially the one that I had the worst attitude about was folding my laundry. Laundry goes in the washer, we're all good. From the washer to the dryer, that's fine. From the dryer, things kind of went south there. I would take it and it would just kind of like crumple up in a ball and like shove it down into the laundry basket and maybe stomp on it a couple times for good measure. And, and that was my idea of folding laundry. I did not like doing it. I still don't like doing it. I'm 26 years old. But uh, I want to ask you another question, kids. So think about those chores that you did where you sometimes have a bad attitude towards them. Now, now I, when I was a kid, I wished I never had to fold my laundry and I just didn't have to do it because it's stinks, and it's annoying, and it takes up time, and what's the point, because you're just going to wear the clothes anyways, and who cares how you look, right? But if I got my way, or if you got your way, I mean, you sometimes think that, and you never had to do those chores, what do you think would happen? So, so picture this, you never have to do those chores, and, and Evie, what do you think is going to happen if you never had to do that chore your whole life? Your house would be very dirty, yeah. What else would happen? If you grow up to be an adult, what kind of adult do you think you're going to grow up to be? Yeah, you're not going to be a very good adult, right? If you, if you grow up and you never have to do these chores, it's just not going to be very good for you. Well, the reason I bring that up and we talk about that today is because in, in our passage today, uh, it's about a man named Job. And Job goes through a lot of really tough stuff, and he's going to complain to God and say, God, I wish I didn't have to go through that stuff. I wish I didn't have to do this. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. And we're going to see in God's response here to Job, which, we, which Emma Sarah read through uh, chapter 38, but, but on through the end of the book, um, we're going to see that God has a plan and a purpose for the, the tough, challenging things that Job went through. Uh, and, and so Job is able to trust in the end of his story that God does these things uh, with a plan, and he does it for a purpose, and that that purpose is to help him to grow and become a, a responsible, 
uh, spiritual adults. Um, so kids, when you go home today, next time you do a chore, your parent asks you to do a chore, and you're thinking about having that bad attitude, I want you to think about Job and, and think about how he was able to trust in God, and he was able to trust even though uh, he, he doesn't get a, a complete answer necessarily um, for, for why do I have to do this hard thing, um, that he was able to trust that his Father in heaven loved him, uh, and, and that you can trust that your parents love you as well, and just want you to, to grow up and, and be good, mature people. So, kids, good job. Now, adults, we are not talking about chores. Um, we are talking about uh, Job. And I, I picked this passage out. Uh, really, I wanted to do the whole book of Job, but I was told that we don't have time for that. Um, but, but I picked this passage out of Job because it's, it's one of my favorites, and I think it really contains uh, one of the foundation, foundational questions of our whole faith, which is this question uh, all throughout the book of Job is, is why should we trust God? And that's the main question in the book of Job. And the answer, as it turns out, is, is kind of simple and, and kind of complicated. So we're going to walk in both sides of those. Um, Job as a book is very complicated. It has some narrative parts. The first two chapters are like this story. But then it, it stretches out and gives us like 38 chapters of just like philosophy, where it's like these people are talking in this narrative dialogue, kind of written as poetry. And like Job is talking to his friends, and Job is talking to his wife, and then Job is talking to God. And then there's this guy, Elihu, who kind of wanders through, and nobody's really sure what he's doing there. Um, but he has some really good stuff to say. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm saying is that Job is this enormous book, 42 chapters. Uh, it's an ancient piece of literature. And so if I fly past something this morning and you're like, I really wish that he had spent more time on that, just know that I feel the same way. And if you ever want me to come over to your house and talk to Job, talk about Job for 17 hours, I will do that, no questions asked. That is like my favorite thing to do is to talk about the book of Job. Um, but this morning we're aiming more for a, a specific point. I'm going to wager, there's a good possibility, that none of you have had your camels uh, looted by Chaldean raiders. You've probably not had your homes uh, swept away in a windstorm and your families crushed and killed. Probably uh, you have not had your flocks of sheep torpedoed by lightning. And your body is probably not, just going to make some assumptions here looking around the room, probably not covered in horrible sores. My point in saying all this is that these are not typically the things that we're going to complain about to God, but we do complain. So my main point this morning is, is to invite you to think about some of the things that do cause you to complain to God, some of those things that do make you wonder whether God is good and, and loves you and is in control, because we do have those things and we do complain. And I'm going to invite you into some of my questions and some of my wonderings as well, because I have so many of those. I have plenty. And by the end of the morning, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to give you an answer uh, from anything in myself, but I can point you to where the answer is. Um, the answer is in God. And, and just like how God responds to Job, um, it, it's going to be a little bit complex, but it's also going to have some simplicity to it as well. Um, so would you please join me in prayer uh, before we jump into the text this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity to speak through your word to learn more about you and, and just to understand who you are and, and how your heart is for us. Father, I just ask that this morning, just that I would say something true about you, that, that we would be able to, to know some new facet of your heart that, that maybe we didn't know before, or to remember um, something that we had forgotten. God, I just ask um, yeah, that you would, you would just illuminate this text to us and, and, and to see how Sometimes it's not always as it appears. Um, 
when we, when we bring our own personalities to the text, um, but God, to know who you are. So in your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is recap Job. We started in chapter 38, so we missed like 37 whole chapters of really good stuff. I'm just going to summarize those first two chapters, which is kind of the narrative portion where it's a setup to the story. So if you're not familiar with Job or you need a refresher, here's what's going on so far. Satan is roaming the earth. He's being generally awful, doing Satan-y things. And then God comes up to him and says, hey, have you considered my servant Job over here? He's faithful and cool, and I like him a lot. Satan says, well, he probably only likes you because you give him all this good stuff. Let me take it all away, and then we'll see if he curses your name. And God says, well, okay, challenge accepted. So Satan does that. He takes away all of his stuff. He takes away his family. He takes away his home. He takes away his wealth. And then he takes away his health in the end. And Satan's doing all these horrible things. He has all these people come around him being very unhelpful as they're doing so. And Job becomes very, very, very miserable. And then the rest of the book... Uh, the, you know, chapter three, kind of onwards till the end, is, is these conversations that we mentioned earlier. So Job is talking to his friends who are giving him unhelpful advice. Job is talking to his wife, who's the only one who survived, and maybe he's not so happy about that because she's giving him this awful advice. And, and then this guy, Elihu, comes in and is going to kind of try and give some clarification and some wisdom. It, it's not going to do a lot of good. And, and then we get to chapter 38, and God finally responds to Job. And, and then he does this in this kind of marvelous um, interesting, like fascinating way. But back to chapters one and two, uh, things start off really well. So Job, his family and his possessions are taken away in that first chapter. And then we're told when Job responds to God, he, he kind of speaks out of his heart a little bit. And we're told that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So that's good, right? He did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, but then, you know, his, his health is taken away from him, and he's covered in these horrible boils, and it's, it's really terrible. And, and he responds again, and we're told, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, so far, we're one chapter in, we're two chapters in, and, and we're doing really well. And then we get to chapter three, and, and things kind of start to go like, like that. It goes downhill really fast. Because the title of the third chapter, if you have like these ESV headings, is Job Laments His Birth, which is not great. And then you get a little, a little further on, you get a couple more chapters in, and, and you see him say, my life has no hope, as another one of those section headings. And it's like, that's not great either. And then he's, he's talking to God, and another one of those says, there is no justice. And these are sort of the, the titles of these miniature sections where he's kind of laying out his struggles and frustrations and complaints. And, and so it seems like we're here at chapter three, there's like 42 chapters in this book, and it seems like Satan has already achieved his victory, Right. It seems like Job is already despairing, he has already given up hope, and Satan has won. But that's not the case. Uh, Timothy Keller preached a, a sermon on Psalm 88, which I am going to shamelessly steal large parts of it. Um, because he says this, he says, while Job is complaining and he's frustrated and he's bringing all these things to God and it's really messy and he's saying all these terrible things, Timothy Keller notes that he is saying them to God. And so because in the midst of his suffering and his frustration with his heart all full of darkness and anger and all of this horrible stuff, he's not turning away. He's not like hiding this in some dark place. He's taking it to God. And so God, at the, at the end, in chapter 42, after all of this mess, these messy things that Job has said to him, these, these kind of wrong-headed things that Job has said to him, uh, God says, my servant Job has honored me with his words. Which is striking, right? That's weird. Like, you know, he's saying all these wrong, terrible things, but these terrible prayers, as Timothy, call, as Timothy Keller calls them, they're still prayers. 
He's talking to God. And because he's talking to God, even though things don't make sense and he's angry and he's frustrated and he's not even saying the right things, he's saying all the wrong things, he's still praying. And in Job's darkness, he prays. And because of that, God says, my servant has honored me. And Satan does not have his victory. Now, we might say that's all well and good. He still shouldn't have said those things that are wrong. And if you read through the book of Job, you'll see Job says a lot of really long things, or wrong things about God in a long way, too. Um, and, and that's true. That's right. And that's why this morning I wanted to read through chapter 38, and really the rest of it, but time. Um, because in these passages, God does correct Job. And, and when he corrects Job, uh, I, I think we're all familiar with that, if you know Job. But um, I, I think and I suspect that maybe when he corrects Job, and it's, it's in a way that we don't typically think about. So I want to explore that a little bit in talking about God's uh, his tone. So in these last few chapters of Job, from chapter 38, which we read, all the way through the end, so through to the end of 42, God has this, this enormous response to Job. And, and I've always been tempted when I grew up, and you may be tempted to do the same thing, to read this in this booming voice of like this Zeus-like figure, you know, sitting on top of Mount Olympus with lightning and thunder, and he's, he's tossing his lightning bolts down to strike. And I think that's our immediate interpretation and our immediate response, because that's how we respond when people say wrong things about us. As humans, you know, people say wrong things about us. They say things that are not true. And our response is to get angry and fight back. And believe me, I teach sixth grade English, and so people say a lot of wrong things about me throughout the day. Um, and so my response when people say that, those wrong things is like, I want to fight back. I want to show you that you're wrong, and I don't always care if I'm super kind and nice while I'm doing it. I'm just going like, to put you in your place, right? And so that's what we take to God, and we take that to Scripture often. Um, but... Uh, I'm going to speculate a little bit, and I want to be clear that this is speculation, but I'm going to give you three reasons why I think it's well-founded. That God is not booming or towering or intimidating Job here, but rather he's taking a tone that's much more familiar to many of us. It's this tone of a father firmly correcting his child to keep him from harm and to bring him to goodness. Right, so it's correction, but it is going to be given with love. And I have three reasons I think that. So first... um, Consider what I just said a minute ago. Someone says something wrong about you, you want to correct them and get angry. Put just a little bit of a twist on that. So what do you think happens if someone you love says something that's wrong about you? Yeah, there's still going to be anger in there, but more than anger, there's also going to be this sadness, right? Sadness and hurt that someone that I love, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your kid, uh, a family member, or like your best friend, they've said this wrong thing about me, and I am going to be angry, but first, I'm going to be sad. And I'm going to desire to restore and correct that relationship. Uh, And so when we look at Job's final response here in chapter 42, verse 6, which we didn't read, uh, his response, I think it's primarily relational. So he has this to say. Um, he, He says to God, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And so what he's saying there is when he says I despise myself, he's saying I lower myself. I, I, I put myself beneath you because I am sorry that I said these wrong things about you. And and so if God had been in in these chapters, 38, 39, 40, if God had been taking this tone of like this mob boss who's like going to break his knees if he doesn't like say the right thing, it's like, all right, you better say the right thing or like you're going to get whacked. You know, like if that was God's tone there, I don't think Job would be speaking relationally here. I don't think he would be saying, I lower myself, I humble myself before you. Like I feel awful about myself. He wouldn't be saying that. He would just be cowering and submitting. Um, so that, that's, that's reason number one. I think God is speaking here to pierce Job's heart. 
And I don't know about your houses, every, every house is different, but when we had arguments growing up, like, we didn't restore those relationships after the arguments by like screaming at each other and frightening each other into submission. Right? You used to restore the relationship with love. And so the second thing uh, that I want to talk about is how much God loves Job. And so, so more to the text, let's jump a little bit more into that. We already know how God feels about Job in this moment. We already said at the end of chapter 42, God says of Job, my servant Job has honored me. And even more than that, like if you read further to the end of chapter 42, you'll know that God restores Job. He gives him all his stuff back. He gives him a family back. He gives him his wealth, his riches, his household, everything. And he gives him even more than he had before. He says, my servant Job has honored me and have all of this good stuff. Let me bless you richly. He even has a long uh, and full life. That would be a really weird, inconsistent picture of God. If just a minute ago we had God who was like screaming at Job and telling him like, you need to fix this, like be right. But check out the new digs. You like them? I got you a new camel, hybrid camel, you know. And, and so that would be a weird, inconsistent picture of God. And I just don't think that fits. I don't think it makes any sense to see a, a God who's like booming and towering and intimidating, and then right after that, blessing Job richly and saying, my servant has honored me here. Uh, there are other places in scripture that show us how God disciplines and corrects his people. I'll, I'll point to just a couple here. Hebrews 12:6 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he disciplines us for our good. In Galatians 6, uh, they're, they're counseling believers there. If you find a brother engaging in sin, to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And if that's how God instructs his people to act, you, you would hope that God holds himself to that higher standard as well. In Revelation 3 to the church in Laodicea, God says this. He says, those I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It seems there maybe God doesn't even necessarily want to be administering this discipline either. He doesn't love it, but he knows that it's, it's what has to be done. Those I love, I reprove and discipline, but be zealous and repent. He would rather just repent than discipline. Right? And, and so, uh, and Job knows this as well, because if you go back to chapter 5, verse 17, Job says this of God, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And so even Job knows this, um, which, which we know as well, that God's discipline, his correction, it comes with love. So in chapter 38 here, when we see God correcting Job, it's accompanied by love, and, and that's the tone. But just in case you're not convinced, I have one more thing to point to. Uh, Matthew 11, verses 27 through 30. Um, most of you know this. Jesus is, is saying this to his disciples. He says, No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone whom the, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, a lot of you are familiar with the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. And he points out that this is one of the only places in Scripture where God describes his own heart through Jesus. He says, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. You will find rest for your souls. So if we're to take God at his word, he says he is gentle and lowly in spirit. How should we expect him to be interacting with Job here? Job is someone who is weary and heavy laden. He's going through it. He's going through some of the worst stuff that you could possibly imagine. It's not just the problems that he's going through, but that there's no reason for it. It's the senselessness of all of it. And so Job is weary here, and God is approaching him as one who is gentle and lowly in spirit, who desires to bring his servant rest. Not towering, not intimidating, not booming, not, not any of this stuff, 
but he's approaching in love. It's firm love. It's corrective love, but it is love. So that, that, I think, brings me to what the really fun part is, which is actually talking about what God says. So we maybe know that this is maybe how God is saying it. Let's talk about what he actually says in Job 38. So he's setting out this series of rhetorical questions before Job, which are all basically asking the same question. It's, it's who are you, O man? You know, why do you think you are able to say all of this to me? And so, so he says, to paraphrase a little bit, he says, where were you when I created the earth and when I poured in the sea? Are you going to lecture me about right and wrong as the one who raises the sun and moon each day and night, who warms you in the summer and cools you in the winter? Can you command the hail and the lightning in the midst of the storm? Can you bring rain to a desert or freeze it into frost or gather it into the clouds? And as he's asking Job all of these questions, think again about like what we just said about tone, that he's not shouting or booming. He's not screaming to, to get Job to submit. He's, he's not saying, where were you, puny mortal? Do I need to teach you another lesson? Right? He's, he's not, not doing that. He's speaking to a beloved son. Who, he's tenderly asking, where were you, my foolish, beloved, misguided child? I held all of creation in my hand. What do I still need to teach you about myself that you still don't know who I really am and what my heart is for you? God's goal in Job 38 here and onward is to remind Job of who he is. He's saying, look at me. You don't know who I am well enough yet. You need to come to me and know me better. And he knows that when Job does, he's going to find the answer to his questions. He's saying, look how big this world is that I've made, from the motion of the heavens and all their grandeur to the minutest motions of the tiniest, lowest animals, from the wildest forces of nature to the firmest foundations of creation, see the magnitude of everything that I hold in my hands. I hold it all with ease, and I still think about you, and I still respond to you, and I still talk to you. So look again at your questions and wonder whether you still need to ask them. Now, let's jump back to Job's perspective for a minute. So God's saying all this stuff to Job. And earlier I said that Job's problems are not typically the same ones that we bring to God, that we have different complaints. It's tough work being a human being a lot of days. But Job's essential complaint is, you can see my pain, you're doing nothing. Am I going to get justice from you or not? But, but you may have different complaints as you struggle with different hurts. For some of you, your complaint may be, why can't I hear your voice or feel your presence like I used to? Or, or why can't I have just one moment of uninterrupted joy before the world crushes my spirit again? Others of you might say, why did you take that person from me so soon? Don't you know how much I needed them? Or others of you may ask, why won't you answer just this one prayer? How much longer do I have to wait? You might recognize some of those voices. You might recognize all of them. They're not that hard to come up with. You just scrape off the surface of the human heart, and, and they're just all right there. And to be honest, even those ones are pretty much surface level. We know when we dig deeper into our hearts that there is just some real ugliness there. If you dig a little bit deeper into my heart, you're, you'll hear a voice that's very raw that sounds like this. It says, why, God, did you have to make something as misshapen and grotesque as me? If you had any goodness in you, you never would have burdened the world with this joke of a person. If you had made me good, then I wouldn't have all these struggles that twisted my heart and eat away at me from the inside. But you did not make me good. And that's my voice. That, that we do have Satan who accuses us, and we do have Satan who, who, who tempts us and, and puts thoughts in us. But we also have our own voices. There is enough ugliness in our own hearts that we can't get away from, and we have to deal with it. I share that voice with you, my voice, not, not to shock you, 
my MC knows I can say some pretty shocking things, but uh, because these are the sorts of voices that sit in the darkness of our hearts, and they disable us for life. You heard all of that ugliness that came out of me just a second ago. Can you imagine if I just let that sit in the darkness for the next decade and just pushed it down and hoped that I didn't have to deal with it? Can you imagine the kind of havoc and destruction that would wreak on my life? Job had a voice like that. You can read about 20 chapters of it. And he took that voice, he brought it to God. He didn't suppress it, he didn't try and hide it. He didn't try to pretend to be good before God. He didn't pretend to say the right things, even though all of this was what was inside of him. He said what was inside of him, and he said it to God. And when he said it to God, God said, you are righteous because you brought it to me. I know every single person has an accusing voice inside of them. Maybe not the same voice, not the same words, not the same severity. Maybe some of you, it's a little deeper down. I've had to pull mine up a whole lot. But everyone has the voice that says to God, I don't trust you. I demand better. It's the voice of Job. So the big question, what do we do with it? What do we do now that, now how do we answer that question? Uh, and I can think of a line from one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, which, which makes this point really, really well. Um, it's called Till We Have Faces. Uh, it's one of his lesser-known novels, but if you know it, you really know it. It's a good one. Um, the main character, Oriol, uh, it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche story from Greek mythology. And so the main character, Oriol, she has all these complaints. Like Job, she brings her complaints to the gods, and, and she lays it all out, and, and then she uh, says these words as the closing lines of the book. I think they're really fitting for us to reflect on today. She says, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? No other answer will suffice. God himself is the only answer. We have to approach him and see him, and all of those questions will die away. At the start, I, asked, or I said that Job asks this question, why should we trust God? I think that's a really foundational question. The simple answer is, because he is who he says he is. So go take a look. But understanding the depths of that answer is not a simple thing. It's the work of a lifetime. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not something that you have a, a split revelation of, and then all of a sudden everything changes and everything is better. It is a slow process of understanding, and I'm still going through that process of understanding myself. Um, I'm, I'm not going to pretend, like I said at the start, to have all of the answers, to know all of the answers. But I do know God. When we begin to know who God is, to seek him out and understand his heart for us, all those questions, those fears, those doubts, those accusations, those terrible things, they'll all fade away because God is our hope. So look to God and see him and know who he is. And, and yeah, bring your sickness with you. Bring your messiness. Bring all of those unsayable, unutterable things that are hiding deep in the depths of you that you're scared to bring out and bring them to God because that, that's how you deal with them and that's how God will deal with them. Let him sort it out. If I could encourage you with just one thing this morning, it would be this. Don't let your messiness be the thing that keeps you from running to God. Because we are all messy. And the uniquely qualifying thing that, that, that lets you share in this hope that we have is your inability to clean yourself up. You cannot fix your mistakes. You cannot resolve that voice that's inside of you. But God can. So speak to God, even if you speak to him like Job, because he is pleased when you run to him and bring your sickness. Now, all of that was the answer that Job received. And that was sufficient for him. He, he was able to look at this invisible, distant God and to say, this is a heart of love here. 
and to trust in the security of that answer. But we're not Job. And we do have a greater hope to look ahead to. We have the hope of Jesus who, who not only made us, but came to be one of us and to die for us and, and is now like a hope that we can look ahead to as well. Right now in heaven, there is a man, a human man, sitting at the right hand of God. And one day we will be able to see him with our physical eyes and hear him with our ears and touch him with our hands. So how could we possibly have any less hope than Job had? He didn't know about any of that, but we have access to so much through Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the words of Job. Thank you for showing us once again through Scripture just the messiness of people like us. And God, as we walk away from this, help us not to think about how messy Job is and and to think that he's not like us, but to realize the ways that he is like us. And to realize that all of this is swirling around inside of us, but that God, when we have those questions, that you are the answer. That God, we only need to run to you, to know you and to seek you out, and your heart will mend us. Your heart will, will heal us. Your heart will give us peace and security through your love. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the, the just such a sacrifice that he gave to such an, an angry, undeserving people. Thank you for the hope that we have. In your name we pray.